Let's do it. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. Main man. I can tell you everything about Main Man. Why and what and how and whether it was exciting or not. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. A very long, wonderful adventure. Hello, welcome to episode 10 in our series that explores the history of Main Man. Featuring behind-the-scenes stories from those who worked for the groundbreaking management rights company that reshaped the rock and roll landscape in the early 70s and enjoyed a reputation for hedonism and excess. Suddenly, the hair was getting cut. It was made crazy. A lot of crazy makeup and everything was coming in. It was Jackie Curtis, who was a huge influence on David, wearing glitter and putting exotic and unusual and unexpected makeup on her face. Main Man was the brainchild of Tony DeFries, who worked with a larger-than-life roster of acts that included Amanda Lear, Dana Gillespie, David Bowie, John Mellencamp, Iggy Pop, Mop the Hoople, Lou Reed and Mick Ronson. Slaughter on 10th Avenue, a movie in music by Mick Ronson. Available on RCA Records and Tapes worldwide. A Main Man production. In today's episode, we're going to hear from a few of the people that lived and worked with Angela and David at Flat 7, 42 South End Road, Beckenham, better known as Haddon Hall, the place they moved to in late 1969, which became an artistic commune for several years during the time that David transitioned from pop wannabe to global megastar. A wide variety of very colourful, very talented characters enjoyed the freedom of Haddon Hall over the years. One of the first people to move in was producer Tony Visconti, who met David in autumn of 1967. The first song they produced together was Let Me Sleep Beside You, which they recorded on September the 1st of that year, along with Karma Man. But it wasn't until the summer of 1969 that they worked on a full album together. Man of Words, Man of Music was the US title. In the UK, it was David's second self-titled album. The pair became close friends, so when David and Angie invited Tony and his girlfriend Liz Hartley to join them in Beckenham, they moved in just before Christmas 1969. At home in his studio in New York City, Tony Visconti recalls moving into Haddon Hall. Well, I think uh, David and Angie discovered this place, that it was um, for rent, and they needed a place to stay, but it was too big for just the both of them. And they suggested that we live in the style of a commune. And uh, Liz and I were in a nice flat in Earl's Court, but, you know, it just seemed very appealing that we do that. And we were musically associated. We were good friends. And it was a logical move. So we, you know, very innocently went down to Beckenham. And the first time I lived outside of London, by the way, for, you know, I was always like living in Earl's Court or... South Ken, somewhere like that. So this was a big move for me, a big decision. We were totally unprepared for our first night there. It was abysmally cold. <laughs> uh, we had no central heating. I've got a photograph of uh, Liz and Angie and David sitting around the uh, fireplace in the, the big hall. And, you know, it's hardly glowing. And that was it. There was no heating in our bedrooms. Although I think, I can't remember whether... The bedrooms had fireplaces, so it was pretty cold. There was four of us living in this apartment initially, and we had yet to invited um, 
Mick Ronson and all the other people who eventually came over to live there as well. I mean, there was plenty of space to do something like that. And uh, it was a little uh, intimidating at first because the Grand Hall was two stories tall, uh, even more than that. And it had this gallery around the top. And the place took a lot of electricity to light up. You know, so there were many, many dark corners. And I really didn't get the size of the place until I was there for a couple of days. There were two bedrooms. So David and Angie took the front one, and Liz and I took the back one. And those were the two bedrooms in, in the uh, this flat. And they were big. So we, we had, I, I don't know how we actually got a bed in there. Maybe we brought our own. Although I think we had to buy one quickly because I think in Earl's Court we had a furnished flat. But anyway, we had a nice big double bed and uh, zero furniture. I mean, not even a chair. But, you know, over the, the weeks we went to the Old Kent Road or wherever, you know, and we started filling the place up. We had a, a friend called uh, Roger Fry who became Roger the Roadie. I think we met him pretty early on, and he helped us move in, and uh, he was the man with the van. You know, you have to know a man with a van. And <laughs> so I think a lot of uh, the moving in took place over the next uh, month or so. And then the place filled up, and it became more comfortable. And in your autobiography, you mentioned that you were sure the house was haunted. That was, that. well, first of all, it felt as haunted is anything. It, it just felt creepy. And I'm, I'm sensitive to that. And um, Angie was too. We both felt that something was there besides us. You know, you would make a hammer film in there. Let's put it that way. <laughs> a hammer horror film. It had all the earmarks of a, of, of a haunted house. I think it was early in the spring when we looked from the back porch into the garden. First of all, the garden was probably from the back porch to the hedges was probably about 50 feet, 40 or 50 feet. And in the corner of the garden, we saw a woman dressed in white. It looked like Victorian clothes. She was, and she was all white. I mean, it was, it was an apparition. It wasn't a flesh and blood person. And she kind of walked slowly and then just disappeared. Liz and I saw that. Uh, Angie later said that she saw it. David never saw it, never saw this apparition. We told him it was there, and he was always skeptical from the start. He didn't, didn't think there was a such thing as a ghost. But um, it was kind of nice to know that there was a ghost there because it, it made the experience complete. You know, it didn't frighten us. It's just something we accepted. It wouldn't be right if there wasn't a ghost there. Let's put it that way. Even when you and Liz moved out of the flat, you continued working with David in the studio there and experienced another haunting, right? Yeah, I went back to, to Haddon Hall uh, quite, quite frequently. And as I said, you know, because of the ghost and all that, one night I, was, I stayed really late and I was too frightened to go back to Penge because I was sitting in the living room not the big hall, but the living room. And Angie was staring at the door and she screamed. So and David and I, I asked it on him, upright, up, straight up. <laughs> and uh, we said, what did you see? And she said, I saw an upside down crucifix on the door. So David and I were just like 
we turn pale. You know, we were just too frightened to even speak. So it's about midnight, and I said, I'm not going home. <laughs> so someone was already in my old bedroom with, with uh, Liz and... Uh, you know, and I shared with Liz, so I think, you know, the members of the band, somebody was in there. So I, I slept in, I slept that night in David and Angie's bed. And as soon as dawn came, I went right out there and got on the scooter and went back to Penge. But, uh, you know, that, that ghost kind of never left me, never left my thoughts. And the next person to join the commune at Haddon Hall was John Cambridge. Yes. Um, he was in a band called Junior's Eyes, who I was producing, and... I was very loath in those days to use session people to record with. I, I liked kind of rock musicians around my age. I preferred their company and their fresh style of playing. Maybe it wasn't uh, the best playing in the world, but I liked the feel of John. And uh, I invited him to do some uh, live gigs with David and myself. And we put him up. He was the first person to uh, sleep in the haunted gallery. Now, I mean, you wouldn't get me up there at night for any reason <laughs> but john was a brave lad from hull and uh, he would you know he he would give the ghost a punch in the nose if it bothered him you know so he was the right person to go up there there were no hotels in the area i think even the the pub had no rooms that with the one and only pub in the area had no rooms so we could house a lot of people there given we could get the mattresses you know even though you and john had been working for quite a few years you were still not earning a lot of money right no, David was the only one who was a bit flush. He had royalties from Space Oddity, or an advance. I don't think he had royalties that soon, but he certainly did get an advance. So he and Angie started filling up their room very quickly. And uh, I don't know, I think David was paying John a retainer, but it was very low money. I can't ac actually remember how much money, e even maybe I was getting paid by David. I but I don't think so. I think it was just John was the only employee in the house. But we did have food expenses. So um, we reasoned that with uh, eight pounds a week each, we would have enough to uh, budget for food. So, you know, this was early days of communal living. And all this stuff was a bit kind of daunting in a way. Like, who, who really knew how much anything cost? And all we would know is that we would like enough money left over to buy cigarettes and have a, maybe a pint a couple of days a week. That's, uh, that's what mattered to us. But apparently Angie was pretty good at whipping up a decent meal from whatever was around the kitchen. Well, she, she could, but then they ended up buying silly things like caviar <laughs> with our money. <laughs> I mean, we could. <laughs> and that's when I think, I think when that happened, we, we went a little bonkers because by this time, Woody replaced John when that happened. And Mick Ronson actually came in when John was living there. And Mick Ronson usurped John by inviting Woody Woodmansey down because uh, Woody replaced John in the Rats. And now he was replacing John in the Hype, which was our band. So now we were Woody, Ronson, and myself, and Liz and we found that the uh, eight pounds wasn't going that far because we ran out of food after two days. And it was the way Angie and David really liked to eat well. They would buy like little chicken fillets and all kinds of beef and stuff. And we were basically vegetarian. So we had an enormous row. I mean, one that would you could probably hear half a block away. But once the air cleared, 
we sorted it out. Like we said, we just fend for ourselves. We didn't do that weekly uh, eight pounds a week budget any longer. We just, you know, we, we ended that communal life very rapidly. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Well, the, the, communal, the communal concept, you know, we should have been uh, rubbish diving instead. Uh, that would be the real communal life. Pretty early on in your stay, you put your technical expertise to good use, building a studio in the basement. Well, we converted the uh, little wine cellar in the basement to uh, become a, a rehearsal studio. And uh, everybody put a bit of labor into it. We put some frameworks. We got some timber and um, put up some soundproofing material, something straw wrapped in fiber that like burlap, basically. But I, I remember once we did that, it did the job. It kind of deadened the room, but it was mainly soundproofing on the inside. I think the sound still got out of the basement because we turned everything up to 11 down there. We took no prisoners, you know, sound-wise. It was deafening. But uh, we did rehearse every day. I know we, we did a prior gig that really didn't go very well, and we realized that... Uh, uh, we couldn't be under rehearse for the roundhouse gig, which was very, very important. So, yes, it was a flurry of activity, and um, we rehearsed day and night. And, as you mentioned, Woody brought in Mick Ronson to replace John Cambridge on the balcony. Although quiet around the house, his playing was such an important development in David's music at the time. Oh, yes. Uh, playing with Rana was a, a joy. He knew his stuff. He learned quickly, and... He was always a bit shy to um, suggest something. You had to kind of squeeze it out of him. But once he got the go-ahead, you know, he really felt that he got approval. Then he became more outspoken, and it was nice to hear his voice. But honestly, he was monosyllabic for a while. You know, it was like grunting, really. You know, he was really shy. It was unbelievable how shy he was as a, as a person. And yet, you know, his guitar playing, he, he played like a lion. You know, his guitar playing was incredible and outrageous. Uh, he would give Jeff Beck a run for the money just straight out of Hull. You know, he was already there. He was brilliant. And his playing really toughened up the sound. Absolutely. We did the first album and... Uh, we said, you know, we looked at each other. It was kind of folk rock, you know. There was nothing ballsy about that first album, the Space Oddity album. We used Junior's Eyes band, but they were kind of soft as well. It wasn't really a hard rock band. But then we were listening to Cream and, and all the, the harder acts around us. So we, we talked about, prior to reading, meeting Rano, we talked about we needed a third person. It's just David and I weren't capable of getting us up to that very acceptable rock level, which uh, everyone else seemed to be doing well except us. So Rano couldn't have come at a better time. We would allow him to work out a part. And yet, of course, we were already impressed by his playing and his tone. You know, this was the real deal. You know, we were very, very pleased with him. But it was very much cooperative between the three of us. And before we got into the studio for The Man Who Sold the World, for instance, Rano was already writing his own parts. He was coming up with some great riffs and double-tracking ideas. So he worked in very well by that point. Rono shared the upstairs landing at Haddon Hall with Woody Woodmansey, who tells a great story about Rono's first session scoring the strings for Life on Mars. There was a guy around called Paul Bookmaster, who's still around, right, a great arranger, and Mick had kind of listened to a lot of those. And I think he did some, I can't remember which ones, he did some early stuff for David. 
even though Trev and Mick didn't know each other back in Hull before the band thing, Mick had been going to Trevor's grandmother for piano lessons, right? So he did, they went, okay, we'll go back to my granny. <laughs> so he went back to Hull, you know, and studied back and got his grades on piano and all that, got that sorted, and then got like a, an apprenticeship on arranging, right? And I, I always looked at him like he, he was kind of a rock and roll guitarist, arranger, and he arranged as a rock and roll guitarist. He really knew the same as he knew what to play guitar-wise. He approached the arranging the same. And Life on Mars was the first one he did. And we were, in those days, rock and roll probably was not that popular with the BBC orchestras and the string arrangers and all that. It was like rock, they didn't like those kind of sessions. It was like not proper music. There was that air about the place, you know. And we had, the string arrangers were coming in on the Monday morning at nine o'clock, and Mick was up all weekend writing the parts out. He was in the toilet for hours, just writing and, and creating it. And it was Saturday night, he said he'd finished it. And we, we slept on a landing in sleeping bags, basically. That's how we lived for a year. And on a Sunday, David's mother would come, a little bit of normality. She would bring us tea in bed and things like that. And um, we were on top of this landing that had a... What's that um, big Hollywood movie where there's a massive st famous staircase? Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. It, the staircase was exactly like that. So we were on the landing. The doors on the landing didn't go anywhere. There were other flats. So we were up there, and she brought a tea up. And he was so worried about this session. It was his first string thing and all that. And we kind of laid there, and uh, I just heard, Woody, Mick... Woody, Mick, like that, and it was David's mother. Mick stood straight up, no clothes on, <laughs> and, just, and he went, what time is it? And I went, it's nine o'clock, Mick, and he went, the session's on, and it was Sunday. And I went, Mick, it's Sunday, and he went, oh. By then, the tray had fallen, <laughs> and she'd shot off. It was just, I was dying. But then he went in the studio and the musicians, you know, the strings and celloists, there was a looking down on us. And um, he just went, right, I've got to face this. And he just went and stood in front of them and rolled a cigarette and made them wait. He just rolled a ciggy, you know. And, just, and then they played the thing the first time through and you could see him looking at each other, nodding, going, you know, this is good. And they'd done a take and then the guy, the lead guy went, we'd like to do another one. And we went, whoa, and somebody said, that is rare. Do you know what I mean? You've, they've done the part, what you've written, but they want to do it with more feel or whatever. But you didn't really see that one, to be honest, until we got... It was like this, this number sounds very traditional in its original form. It was a very straight-laced type song, although the lyrics weren't. It was like, how are we going to do this? And it was like, OK, well, I'm going to play it like Bonham plays classical. That was kind of my approach to it. So we worked it out together, basically. And then we got Rick in, and when he started playing Peter, it was just like, whoa, that's something else. That just gave it a musicality and took it somewhere else. And I remember when Ken had mixed it, um, we just sat there and went, ooh, you know? It was like, we know it's good. You know when something's got it. And the next thought was, is it too far? Do you know, is it too much? Are they just going to go, what is that?
Woody and Rono were then joined on the landing by bass player Trevor Boulder, who back in 2012, shortly before his untimely death, recalled meeting David at Haddon Hall in 1971. First meeting David, well, we went down... Actually, I should go back to sort of uh, how I became a member with Woody and Mick. They did Man Who Sold the World, and then they left David and went back to Hull and decided to form their own band, and they needed a bass player. And uh, Mick came and sort of badgered me for about two months into playing with them, and I said, nah, I've got my own band, don't want to do it, you know. And in the end he said, well, can you come and sit in with us until we find a bass player? And I said, uh, all right, then, yeah. And we used to rehearse uh, in a village hall in Woodmansey, funnily enough, just outside of Hull. And, of course, I sat in and then finished up just being there. You know, that was it, I joined. And about six months after we'd been playing together, David rang up and said, do you want to do the John Peel show, the in concert? But he wasn't going to use me, he was going to use Abbey Flowers. And we all trooped off to uh, London got to David's house, Haddon Hall, and walked in, and of course there's Jeff there and all the other people there that were on that, Dana Gillespie, and David turned up with his long hair, blonde hair, and his pair of jeans and a T-shirt on and all that, and they all set up in in his music room. He had a big room in the house that was with a big piano and that, and they all set up, and I thought, well, I'm not doing anything, I'll just sit and listen. And then he says, no, you've got to play. Baby can't do it. And so I'm going like, well, how many songs have I got to learn? Twelve. So I had to learn 12 songs in an afternoon. I remember sitting in the dressing room uh, after we'd just sort of done a run-through and I can't remember which song it was that I couldn't get right. I kept just making mistakes. I mean, I was a young kid, never been in a studio in my life before and quite nerve-wracking. And uh, I remember sitting in the studio with, with the bass guitar up against my ears in the dressing room, rather, and practising and practising to get all the songs right just before we walked on. And luckily enough, got through it all, and it, was, it turned out good. I actually met him just before that, actually. I met him at Harrogate, in a theatre in Harrogate. He was supporting a band there. He was doing an acoustic set, just in him and an acoustic guitar. And we went along to see the show with Mick Muddy. And I met him there for about five minutes. We went backstage. and that, But he's, he was just a regular, down-to-earth, nice guy. You know, he was, he was fine. When we first went down there, I, I, I didn't really know what was going on, but obviously he'd got De Vries behind him at that point in time, and De Vries was backing him to do the sort of stuff he, he needed to do to make it. and that. So I think David was confident, but we, we didn't really know what was going on because we just went in and did Hunky Dory as a one-off sort of thing. You know, We just thought we'd, he asked us to do the album, so we went in and did the album, and we thought after that, that was it. We'd all go trooping off back to Hull and carry on with Rono. And, of course, we didn't. We got persuaded to stay down in London and then go on and do Ziggy. And he took us to see Alice Cooper at the Rainbow. And I always remember, and Alice Cooper was great. We we all loved it, you know, it was a brilliant show. And I remember walking out and he says, oh, we'll be bigger than them. We'll do better than that. We can do better than that. And then he started to explain that he wanted us to change and then wear the costumes. But we'd been to see uh, Clockwork Orange. Just me and the spiders, or the, David and the spiders and Angie, yeah, they went to see that, yeah. The cinema in Lewisham to see it. And he wanted us to dress uh, in, like, the boiler suits, but colourful with the boots. You know, everybody thought that we were dressing like spacemen, but we weren't. We, they called them droogs, I think. We were actually modelled on Clockwork Orange. So that's what he was after. Tony and Sue lived in the basement, and Sue used to look after Zoe when David was busy. And she was a seamstress, 
and she made all the original clothes for the spiders. And the boots were made in a shoe store in Beckenham. But she made all the original clothes, all the blues and the ones I wore and Woody wore. And David's original ones as well. Because we went to uh, St. Liberty's, went there and picked all the material. And we all picked our own colour out, what we wanted. And then we took all the material back and she measured it up and she made them all. But Angie had a big say in it as well, you know, she was involved in making them as well. I think where the makeup thing comes from as well is from the mime side of it. Bowie's mime thing, they always wear lots of makeup. And he, when, he, when he originally tried to get us to wear the makeup, you know, Ronson was like, oh, from, being from the north, what bloody going to do with that to me? I'm not wearing that. <laughs> I, think, you know, I think he was ready to go back to Hull when Bowie mentioned that. But we wore it not as a glam rocky type thing. He wore it like a theatre type makeup because he said if you don't wear makeup, your face won't stand out on stage. You know, you just won't project enough as an individual. Yeah. You you just won't. You need to put something on. That's why actors wear makeup. You know, and of course then everybody else jumped on it and started wearing too much makeup, didn't they? In the glam rocks. Trevor Boulder recalling Haddon Hall. Back to Tony describing some of the other regular visitors to Haddon Hall, including Roy Harper. Yeah, that was strange because we were working with Peter Jenner, his manager. I was working with Peter Jenner because uh, he was managing Mark Bolin at the time. And David knew Peter Jenner. So through him, we met Roy Harper. And also, Roy Harper would come down to the Beckenham Arts Lab and play there. And we knew people like David Cousins from the Straubs. Roy Harper would play at the in Hounslow for David Cousins. You know, we were just kind of friends on the the folk rock circuit. But uh, one day, Roy Harper surprised us. He drove down with his kid. And ironically, this was in February, and the the temperature was about 20 degrees Celsius. We had a very warm day in February. And I've got a photo of Roy, like, sitting on a grass lawn in the back, and he's got his shirt off. (laughs) It's like summer in February. But I think it was on two occasions he visited us, and uh, I later on uh, uh, worked with him, too. So he became a good mate. George Underwood was a constant visitor. He, he was a dear old friend of David's, and he would come and visit us. Barry and Christina. Ba- Christina was Swedish, and Barry was David's good friend. He was a writer. I don't know Barry's surname. But he came around often, and apparently they had a row about space oddity because Barry wrote a short story about, I think, an astronaut who was uh, isolated in uh, outer space and having all these feelings of isolation and not really thinking about the planets and all that, thinking about himself, you know. And, And David kind of lifted this idea, according to Barry, where he got the idea to write Space Oddity. I remember the row. It was, it was ugly. And for a while, Barry was our driver. He would occasionally drive us to solo gigs, you know, just David and myself. When I say solo, it would be David and me and very little else. In early 1970, David decided his then-manager, Ken Pitt, was not the right person to lead his career in the direction he envisaged. So, as we've heard, Tony DeFries came on board and during the earlier period would meet up at Haddon Hall. He, yes, yeah, David got very excited when DeFries came on board. Uh, let's put it this way, DeFries talked that talk, he talked the talk, and he told David, I am impressed with the Colonel Tom Parker Elvis model of management and artist relationship. If we become 50-50 partners, you will be 
I promise you, you will be as successful and as famous as Elvis. That's all David needed to hear. I was there for that speech. And I actually asked Tony DeFries, could you take me on too? So he was my manager briefly until I found out that he really had only eyes for David. So his plan for David worked. It really did. Among the many logistical aspects that DeFries had to take care of was band transport. And in a unique turn of events, he arranged for David and the band to travel to and from Haddon Hall to concerts in an old hearse, which had a very interesting history. So the acquisition of our hearse has many different connections. And about all of these stories that I'm telling, connections are really critical. But in this particular case, the connection goes back to Bill Wyman and the Rolling Stones. Whilst we were working, and I say we, I mean Lawrence and I, were working with Alan Klein on the Rolling Stones, we became the paymasters for whatever it was they needed or wanted since Alan had set up a method of collecting royalties and then essentially lending the money back to the Stones so that they didn't have to deal with the tax issues. So this meant that, for example, Mick wanted a Jaguar, a very special Jaguar, which um, was the XJ progenitor for Jaguar, and it had two petrol tanks, one on either side of the car. And unfortunately, this was before we had real electronics in automotive design. So you had to manually switch over from your tank one to your tank two, or your tank right to your tank left, before you ran out. If one of those tanks ran out, then the second one didn't kick in automatically. So you had to be a little bit careful with that. The idea was to give you a longer range. It was a very big, comfortable car. Um, and we bought it for Mick. And then sometime later, when he wanted to upgrade, I took over the car and it became the Jaguar in which we transported the band. I was the driver and the bouncer and the payment collector. <laughs> and probably a few other things besides stage manager, I guess. At any rate, I was usually driving the car and the band were in the back. By this time, we had road crew, which were ground control, imaginatively named ground control. An interesting bunch of people we'll talk about another time. But they were responsible for bringing the equipment and the instruments to the venue. So all we had to do was get the band to and from the venue and whoever was guesting at the point in time. So that's what that car was used for. Now, where, how does that fit into the hearse? So this is what happened. Bill Wyman took an interest in a band. The band were called Tucky Buzzard, and they needed transportation to and from gigs. And their piano player, keyboard player, who was also a de facto road manager, was a chap called Nicky Graham. So Bill said to Nicky, can you find um, something suitable and different for them to use and Nicky went and found this hearse literally a hearse that had been fitted with 
It was a Ford vehicle, and it had this driver-matic scheme. It was quite interesting for the time. But for our purposes, it was a very useful form of transportation, because this was early on. This was when we didn't have much of an audience yet, so we had to be noticed. And we also had to take some additional people along to be, as it were, immediate fans. So people that were already on the team who were fans and they could fit into the hearse along with the band and then they would be there when we needed them at each gig. So this Tucky Buzzard story gets really interesting in the sense that when the band broke up, we got Nicky Graham as a keyboard player. And then because he was already experienced at road managing, we also got him as a road manager and so we were able to use him for keyboards and driving and road managing. And essentially, he replaced me on many of the early UK gigs so he could take care of those elements that I normally took care of. And by this time, of course, we probably had security independently as well and they would most likely arrive with the ground control crew to do equipment and make sure the venue was adequately safe. What you needed at these gigs was to have preferably girls, preferably pretty, preferably young and preferably wearing um, short things so they could dance. And as soon as you got to a point quite early on in the show where you could get the audience a little engaged, we used to deliberately use spotlights to light up two or three of our team who would be dancing with each other and that would encourage other people who were sort of in the audience to get engaged in dancing to if it was a danceable song a lot of David's tunes were quite danceable early on so you had this opportunity to get people to move with the music which is always hard with audiences the audience don't always move with the music especially English audiences in that era didn't actually do a lot of moving about they tended to be watchers unless they were engaged if they got engaged if the girls were screaming for paul or screaming for i guess now they're screaming for mick but the time in question they were probably more likely screaming for brian the enthusiasm of the audience was then transmitted to the rest of the audience but unless you could get that to begin was really difficult to get an audience to engage so this was our way of if you like getting people to engage at the beginning and then later on we were able to do more with lights and more with props and more with effects but at the beginning in terms of the sort of venues you were playing they were either concert halls which had bare stages they had lighting but it wasn't designed for audience participation um, other venues colleges and clubs or pubs or were again not really designed to be used in this way so we we ended up having to improvise and from improvisation came the possibility to actually design lighting structures that we could then take with us that we could then build and to get away from what was in the traditional form of not very much in the way of lighting for bands unless you were in a fully equipped theatre, but even though the lighting was more about theatrical performance than it was about 
a band performance so it didn't quite work unless you could make it work so a lot of our time was spent finding ways to make the lights work bringing them with us eventually creating our own light setups and ultimately designing the way that lighting and sound were used together which is really the way people are now in any live performance that you see lighting and sound are essential parts and effects are essential parts of the performance and that was something that wasn't in any way shape or form the case in the 1960s and 1970s so that was how we moved into this space of having a hearse at one point in time the hearse lost its cross and that turned into a toy for zoe and that's another story the hearse could be parked i mean haddon hall had a space where you could park vehicles and it probably was parked there from time to time but it was very often because it was in town rather than at Haddon Hall because eventually it had to be driven back somewhere it was often parked in a garage and that's how it lost the cross I think because it was parked in a garage of somebody who missed the point of uh, having a protruding cross on top of the driving vehicles not, not always something you expect to get on top of a car is it so People could be overlooked. Anyway, we never found out who was driving it at the time, but we did have an interesting toy for Zoe, so. <laughs> so that's an introduction to life in Haddon Hall from Tony Visconti, Woody Woodmansey, Trevor Boulder and DeFreeze. There is some great archive from the Haddon Hall period in Bowie's career that is part of an ever-growing collection of memorabilia, a lot of it never seen before, that we are adding to the Main Man website each week. A fantastic record of a very exciting period in rock history. That's at mainmanlabel.com, where you can also check out the other episodes in the Main Man series. In the next episode, we'll hear from Tony Visconti and Angie Bowie, among others, telling the story behind David and Tony's experimentation with The Hype. I'm Des Shaw, and this is a Zinc Media MM Tech production. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.